We've come to chapter 9 this afternoon, Revelation chapter 9. I'll begin to read at the first verse and continue to the end of the chapter. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. And power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth nor any green thing nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths as in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, 
which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, <clears throat> nor of their thefts. Thus far the reading of God's word here. I want to comment on the structure of the chapter, though it may appear to be a no-brainer, because we have the description of the sounding of the fifth and sixth trumpet, and that would seem to be a clue enough to the structure, which is true in its own right. But you'll notice there is a delimiter in verse 12. The first woe is past. Two woes are still coming after these things. There is a marker which indicates a break, a break in a unit of the chapter, verses 1 to 11, the first unit, and verses 13 to 21, the second unit. Although we will learn we are not done with the second woe, which begins in 13 with the sixth trumpet. And the second woe will extend all the way till chapter 11. There's a long interim in chapter 10 before we get to the end of the second woe. All right, now there's one other thing to note here. There is an inclusio around the first unit, verses 1 to 11. And as you scan that, uh, that beginning and ending, it's not fair the way some translations have rendered verse 1. They say bottomless pit. It's literally the pit of the abyss. It is a bottomless pit, but it is literally in the Greek, the pit of the abyss. So <clears throat> reading abyss in verse 1, and then looking down at verse 11, you see abyss again. We have a inclusio framing that fifth trumpet description. Now, the abyss, more broadly in the book of Revelation, is always the pit of hell, the bottomless pit of hell itself, in which, in the pit itself, in which Satan is bound, according to chapter 20, verse 3. So we have this star in verse 1. The star is a characterization of Satan in heaven. Notice star from heaven. So this is a characterization of Satan in heaven. He was star-like in brightness and glory at his creation. And for a while after his creation, we don't know how long, he retained that star-like brightness as a glorious angelic creature. But all of that was lost. All of that brightness and star-like quality was lost when he fell to earth and from the earth was cast down further into the pit of hell as Revelation 12 and 2 Peter 2, 4 detail. Now, he is variously labeled a dragon, a serpent, a devil or the devil, 
as well as Satan, which is adversary. Hasatan, the adversary of God and man. So he has a variety of names, and we have two additional ones in this chapter. Here, in verse 11, he appears as Abaddon, which means destruction, and Apollyon, which means destroyer. The multiplicity of names of this prince of evil and darkness. And yet we haven't exhausted them all, for in the Synoptic Gospels, he also bears the name Beelzebub or Beelzebul, and I'll allow the Greek experts to argue over the proper translation of that word. Thus, this star here in 9-1 is not to be identified with the star of the third trumpet in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, the star which is named Wormwood. There is a different name for that star because it's a different being, it's a different personality or character. Now, one last word on this names of the devil or Satan, the king of the abyss, king of the bottomless pit, the prince of hell. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, in the King James Version, he is called Lucifer. And that's where that name arises to be tagged to the devil. But the Hebrew won't support that translation. And that's the reason modern versions have rendered the hero, the Hebrew text there, a shining one or star of the morning. Lucifer actually comes from a, from the translation in the Latin Vulgate, and it's not a good translation of the Hebrew word that is present there. So Lucifer's not a legitimate biblical name for Satan. It is, it doesn't come from the scriptures properly understood. <clears throat> doesn't mean it's not wrong to call him Lucifer, because uh, <laughs> Lucifer in literature and so on has a very demonic and diabolic character, usually. All right, so from this nomenclature of our adversary, in every instance, we are dealing with a character who was once an angel of light. And to verses 1 and 11 here, you add Revelation 12, 7 as a confirmation of the fact that he was once upon a time, an angel of the light of heaven's glory. But, the scripture narrative details, he was cast out of heaven, down to earth, which is his arena of operation, and further down to the pit of hell, from which he emerges to perform his accursed work. He is called king over this arena in verse 11 of chapter 9. This fallen angel of the abyss with the names destroyer committed to destruction. These names are applying the context of this unit, this fifth trumpet, to the devil. A destroyer committed to destruction. The destruction of the earth and the destruction of the souls of men and women and children. And to back up 
his destroying and destructive force and power, he has an army. He has an army of companions, described here as grotesque locusts armed with scorpion-like stingers. This is a portrait of the devil in action. Now, we have described the book of Revelation as a panorama of symbols, various tapestries or arras of symbolic significance, visionary images which are projected <coughs> upon the tapestry of the book. That symbolic interpretation is even more important for the understanding, particularly of verses 1 to 11 here in this ninth chapter. Because you'll notice that that word like, they are like this, they are like that, they are like something else. That word like is quite common here, and it suggests that there is symbolism in the images that they are like. So what are the various like words in this unit symbolizing? I'm going to take a point of departure here. I'm not going to try to assign these to specific movements or historical personalities or events. I'm going to suggest that the evil which arises from the satanic world, sin which the devil spreads over the created order, targeting especially those whom he is able to torment of the dark side of the moral spectrum, that is, evil arising from moral disposition, an inclination of choice towards evil, an inclination to moral immorality, an inclination to character influenced by the darkness of sin. I'm going to suggest that that is the symbolism of this fifth trumpet. In Satan... It is opposition to God and his kingdom, which is symbolized here. Rebellion and enmity, bitter hostility against God. As John Milton quotes Satan in his Paradise Lost, book one, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That's satanic, that's demonic, but that's a perfect description of what Satan is like. Curse and resist divine superiority. Curse and resist divine love. Curse and resist divine beauty. Curse and resist divine light. That is the M.O. of Satan and his demons. And it is the smoke that he spreads across the moral universe. He is shutting out all the love of God. He is shutting out all the grace of Christ. He is shutting out all the light of God's glory. He is shutting out all the loveliness of God. He is shutting out all the omnipotent power of God. Satan's work is to incline to evil and only evil continually. Satan's temptation and influence is to draw to evil and only evil continually. It is to spread the curse which evil spawns over all mankind or signified by the mark that Satan himself bears. 
He spreads this mark over all mankind who bear his mark, the mark of the beast. Evil blots out the light. Evil clouds over and pollutes the moral atmosphere. In Satan and mankind, it is like smoke, black smoke, which darkens the sunlight and poisons the air. Moral evil loves the darkness. Moral evil is a polluter. So why locusts? If this is imagery which is directed to the general curse of evil that hovers over the created order, why locusts? What is meant by locusts, incidentally? Certainly not what we on the East Coast, those of us who were born on the East Coast, called the locust. It's actually a cicada. But the locust in the Bible is the common grasshopper. Why this common grasshopper symbol? Well, you'll notice from the description that they have iron armor. And their swarming is like massed chariots. They're described as an army. A massive, terrifying, grotesque army. Locust and hordes here advance as a marching army and are so described elsewhere in Scripture, but especially in the book of Joel, chapter 225. But unlike Joel's prophecy, these locusts here are forbidden to devour the green vegetation of the air, earth. In Joel's prophecy, they are cursed upon the created order by stripping it of every living vegetarian piece of green. Here, that is strictly forbidden. Notice, they are not to harm any green element or any tree or any grass of the earth. The curse they spread falls, the curse these locusts spread falls only on those whom God has not sealed with the name of the Lamb on their forehead. This is a curse which falls upon the wicked. This is a curse which falls upon evildoers. It is not falling upon the saved or the redeemed or the regenerated or the sanctified doesn't mean that they may not be affected by its, by its relationship to their arena, but nonetheless, they are not cursed by it, tormented by it. The symbolism, then, of this part of the vision is that the evil curse and a perverse moral character will be fed by the fruit of the ground. As long as the earth endures to produce green vegetables, so the curse of moral evil will endure, endure fueled by the fruit of the ground. In other words, it has its own life force. It's supported by the fruit of the ground. And as long as the fruit of the ground is there, so this curse of evil will be upon the earth. 
Interesting that he uses vegetable imagery here and not uh, animal imagery, but uh, I don't think that means he's a vegan or anything of that nature. At least I hope not, because I do like steak every once in a while. So, <clears throat> I'm taking a different tack with respect to the meaning of this imagery. I'm saying this imagery is a reflection of what of the curse that has escaped from the bowels of hell and through Satan and his influence particularly. But that that influence has spread out over the earth and will last as long as green vegetation lasts to fuel it. To give those evildoers food and strength for their evil doing, so to speak. Now that's what I take the smoke of verse 2 to be. The smoke is like the cloud of evil over the earth. A cloud which has been over the earth throughout its history, throughout the earth's history, since Satan's success in the garden. Evil has swarmed over the world. Evil, since Satan's success in the garden, has darkened the true light of the world. Evil has polluted the atmosphere of the mind and the heart and the spirit. I said moral evil is a polluter, and it is a polluter in the, in the sense of affecting the personality of man, women, and men, women, and children. Now, in support of what I'm suggesting, I want you to know that notice that evil, this curse, this from the abyss of hell phenomena, does not kill anyone. Death is not the object of this vision. Death is not the object of this vision as it is the object of the next vision, the sixth trumpet. A third of the earth will be killed with the release, with the sounding of the sixth trumpet. This <clears throat> sounding, this trumpet forbids the killing of anyone on the earth. This fifth trumpet then is portraying the evil effects of the hellish curse, but effects short of death. Taking into consideration evil itself, wickedness, sinfulness itself, and the harm it does short of death, the pollution that it creates, the moral pollution it creates short of death. In other words, they're strictly forbidden to kill anyone, but they're not forbidden from tormenting the evildoers with the fruit of their own deeds. Those who belong to this hellish curse <clears throat> during this era are participants with a disposition marked by the beast, not marked by God. And during this era, those whose moral dispositions is evil will advance and pursue it in multiple ways. But all of those ways fall short of death. For the text says they will seek death that they will not find it. So this is the tormenting aspect of evil and wickedness. 
This is the stinging aspect of evil and moral depravity. But it's not not resulting in death per se. In fact, here, they're longing for death, but they cannot find it. This is the symbolism of ungodliness producing its fruit, namely producing the longing for the death wish, but failing to realize the wish of death itself. Now, frequently in this world, wicked people will say, I wish I were dead, and yet they still live. Now, frequently it is said that those who abuse God's creation will come up to the brink of death, but they will shrink from pursuing it completely. I do not deny that suicide is a reality, but nonetheless, this is speaking about the torment of evil and wickedness up to the doorway of death, but not going through it, being haunted by not being able to die, so to speak. Death eludes them. Though their evil depravity causes them to long for it and to yearn for it. This is similar to the rich man in Christ's parable of the rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16. Where the rich man yearns for Lazarus to come and cool his tongue. But his torment is never relieved. Hell itself is a place of longing. Hell itself is a place of longing for annihilation. But never attaining it. Always coming up to the edge of the next step beyond eternal death or torment, and that is the absolute cessation of consciousness, the cessation of being able to experience that death, absolute and utter annihilation. Hell is a place where you're always on the brink of longing for annihilation, but it'll never come. It'll never come. Your torment will never cease. You'll never be annihilated. You'll never be zapped out of conscious existence. Yearning for no more darkness in the pit of the abyss, but never finding the light. Feeling the choking pollution of moral fire and brimstone, brimstone burning sulfur, but never finding a smokeless, brimstoneless environment. Where death, where death does strike, and when death does strike, unbelievers in the world, they remain unbelievers in hell, they are incorrigibly impenitent. Tragically, sadly, this is who's being featured. This is the world which is being featured here in this symbolism of the locusts. Now, in addition to the locusts, we have in the sounding of this fifth trumpet, the sting of scorpions, verse 10. The sting of a scorpion is painful, but not fatal, at least often amongst mankind. It is rarely fatal. I'm not denying that it is occasionally, but not usually. It is very painful, however. Locusts with scorpion tails, symbols again of evil in its moral character, biting evil, stinging evil, 
biting like the locust, stinging like the scorpion. Moral evil torments and hurts. Moral evil bites and stings, causes pain and suffering. Throughout this era of the curse, evil dispositions, evil natures, evil actions bite and sting, torment and hurt mankind up to the doorway of death, but not through in this instance. All right, now that is my basic premise for interpreting the symbolism because of the distinction between they will not die, they're forbidden to, to kill in this fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet, a third of the earth will be put to death as a result of the, of the uh, unleashing of the uh, curse of that sixth trumpet in the next section. Any questions or comments to this point? Yes, Bob. What do you make of the, uh, <coughs> the fact that in those days people would, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 4, those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, so if you've got the seal of God on your forehead, you're not involved in promise. You, the curse is exempt. You're exempt from the curse and its torment because you've been redeemed into another dimension. You've been redeemed into another world. You've been redeemed into the kingdom of heaven. And <clears throat> so this is describing what is happening to the unsaved in this era. Their, their mental torment, their personal anguish, what they cause in terms of the fruits of their evil dispositions. <clears throat> and he's symbolizing that by the locusts, which I want to go through in, in detail to look at the imagery of the locusts themselves and comment on what kind of representation or symbol he's attempting to promote. But I think that's the key here. The key is that this is a world of evil out of the influence of the king of the abyss who is Satan himself and how that evil infects the nature of, of, of sinners in the world and how that evil in those sinners torments and hurts them and the world around them and persons around them as well. So we know this in general, but here he's making a specific imaginary description of it. But somehow the Christians are exempt from this. They're exempt from the curse and the torment of the curse because of Christ forgiving them of it. It's not that they shouldn't be exposed to it, but they've been marked with his seal, and so they're sealed in protection from it, from its power and from its sting. The sting of death is the sin. Strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God that Christ has overcome that, to use a Pauline uh, 1 Corinthians 15 reflection. Art, you had your hand up. I anticipated. Okay. <laughs> That's nice to be ahead of a question once in a while. Or comment for that matter. All right, well, we'll take your break now and we'll come back and we'll look at the details of the locust and we'll keep in mind that this is imagery which is reflecting upon general moral iniquity, moral depravity, moral corruption.
huge grasshoppers. And then the people with the seal, they're there too, and they're just watching. Perhaps, but the fact that he's not including them in is outside the image. So the focus of the camera is upon the unbelieving and unsaved and unsealed. Uh, so he's talking about the dynamic of what makes them work and, and, and how this curse is pervasive. So we talk about total depravity because it's pervasive, pervades the whole personality of a sinner. It does, that's right. It doesn't make any difference. They're off camera, and it, his camera isn't focusing on them. It's like Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he's talking about the resurrection, at the second coming of Christ. He doesn't say anything about the resurrection of the wicked, really, there. So it's, because his camera is focused on the magnificence of what Christ is doing to come for his elect. At least that's the way I see it. Uh, very, very, very focused image and imagery. All right, at verse 7, the locusts are like, there's that word again, the locusts are like horses. The equestrian symbol expresses the strength of evil. The strength of evil. Moral wickedness strong like the surging strength of a horse. A force which is often unrestrained evil unleashed like a horse at a wild gallop, untamed, wild stallion, wild mustang, wickedness running with all that equine strength over the hearts, minds, souls, and inclinations of mankind. This hold of evil, this influence of evil, this yearning and yielding to evil is a strong attraction. It has the excitement and stimulation of the strength of a galloping horse. Now the crowns like gold. These crowns are symbolic of the ruling power. The ruling power to which evil subjects its willing participants. The evil person is dominated, ruled over by the evil power of his or her own nature, disposition, or inclination. The power of evil which rules over sinners is obvious and evident in the evil deeds that that ruling power produces in the world. The distinction between the strength of the locust and the gold crown on the heads of the locust is the difference between the strength of the urge to sin and the ruling power of sin. It dominates the sinner's personality. Now, faces like men, hair like women. This is symbolic that evil torments and stings that that evil which does torment and stings has a human face. It manifests itself in the world of mankind and womankind. Evil is an equal opportunity employer. It has male and female employees and those employees willingly participate in its wicked actions. In other words, there's no exemption in this. 
all forms of mankind, male and female, are affected by this evil influence and inclination. Verse 8, the teeth, like, there's that like again, the teeth like lion's teeth, symbolic of evil in its ferocity, ferocious evil as it torments, biting and tearing its objects, souls of the ungodly torn and shredded by the teeth of wickedness, even as that wickedness tears and shreds the ungodly themselves. In other words, they reap what they sow. That which they're ferocious about devours them. Like a lion devours its prey. The devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's the imagery here. Verse 9. The iron breastplates. These breastplates represent the ironclad resistance and the barrier which evil wears against good. The iron-willed invulnerability to the love of God in Christ Jesus. They are actually impregnable with respect to that desire. Wicked stubbornly display that attitude as a result of the armor that they wear to defend themselves in their natural state their natural unconverted state, the state of the natural man and the natural woman, dressed in the armor of their nature, evil and wicked at heart. Now, I've already commented on the noise of the locust-winged army. I add here to the symbolism of the noise which is generated by this horde this thundering herd, a noise that drowns out the sound of what is good and holy and righteous. The sound of evil, so deafening, it cancels out the sound of peace and righteousness. The wicked are tone deaf to the sound of godliness because they have willingly joined the ear-splitting company of evildoers and listen only to the rhythms of hell. Those rhythms are sometimes put into music that we hear. Demonic, deep devilish music. But they love it. They love it. They dote upon it. It delights them. It pleases them. They wish to promote it. Verse 10, this power lasts five months. Relative to eternal time in heaven or hell, evil in this world is brief and short-lived. So too the time for altering the evil nature, the evil heart, altering the evil will is short. There is a woe far worse than the brief lifespan of evil in this life. Indeed, as the sixth trumpet will reveal, there is death to the evildoer, death which opens the doors to the abyss and the lake of fire, an eternal price of wickedness in the kingdom of the king of darkness himself 
an eternal price and torment never, no, never paid in full. You will not come forth until you have paid the uttermost farthing. It will take you an eternity to even make a dent in paying that uttermost farthing. Brief relative, then. Brief relative to the span of eternity. That's what the five months is signifying, in my opinion. Well, we've anticipated the second woe, which is described in verses 14 to 21, which is also, as the sixth trumpet indicates, a symbolic vision, but now the results of evil. A third of the population of the world is killed by the million-man march of death and destruction. These writers carry the instruments of death and plague. Fire, choking smoke, burning sulfur, noxious gas. If you've ever smelled burning sulfur, you know how bitter and noxious it is. It can even kill you if you can't escape from it. Now the curse of wickedness unleashed by the abyss brings its final bite and sting. It brings death. What is not killed by these armies of death remains ensconced in their unrepentant evil, worshiping gods of their own making, even worshiping Satan himself, practicing the evil deeds of their evil natures, murder, sorcery or witchcraft, sexual immorality, theft. All these evil deeds continue as the evil world continues. They all continue until until the final judgment. A final judgment which is symbolized by the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. So we moved through the panorama of seven temp trumpets, we've only anticipated the seventh at this point. We've moved through the panorama of seven trumpets as we move through the panorama of seven seals. And we're going to get a pattern of repeti- repetition, this description of the world under the created, under the, under the curse of the created order and how that is, how that functions and how it is, has been spawned. And here, how the personalities that have spawned it, namely the devil, who is the king of the abyss, has spawned that influence towards moral iniquity and and corruption itself. The seven trumpets repeat the seven seals, symbolizing the reality and power of sinful evil and wickedness with the general curse of sin upon all mankind except those sealed with the seal of God in Christ by the Spirit redeemed and regenerated and so rescued from it. Sin with its general curse, the torment of sin, then sin with its particular curse, death from sin, and sin with its final curse, eternal condemnation or sin for the unrepentant. Praise be to God that those who are sealed with the seal of the Spirit, those who are sealed on the forehead with the seal of Christ are spared the general curse, particular curse, and the final curse in their most egregious 
manifestations, namely the finality of them. But that has been reversed by the finality with which Jesus himself has reversed the curse of sin, the death of sin, and the, and the hellish nature of sin by triumphing over it and reversing it in himself and of those who belong to him. Praise be to God that the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from these symbolic images of the curse of the pit of hell. Any questions or comments about these images or symbolism? Then we'll pray, and Lord willing, see you next week. Lord, we realize that the world that we live in is cursed by the evil of sin and depravity. And we realize that the source of this curse comes from that prince of darkness who is a liar from the beginning. Lord, we believe that the seal that Christ has given is a seal that belongs to those that are repentant. For this curse falls upon the unrepentant as you have revealed. And so we bless you that in our sorrow from our sin, in our brokenness for our transgressions, in our turning from our iniquity, You have sealed us by the Holy Spirit and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the better message. We thank you for the opposite of the curse, the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. We thank you above all for yourself, triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for your work in our lives and in the life of your church. You bless your people worldwide those whom you have marked with the seal that delivers them from this curse and encourage them that in the face of evil, they have triumphed already in the one who is stronger than the curse of hell and the devil himself, our Lord Jesus. We bless you for your son in Jesus' name. Amen.